Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today, Matt and I begin a special two-part podcast series where we take a look at some of the key issues we're going to be watching in 2022. We have a lot of fun and I know you'll enjoy it. Welcome to Compliance into the Weeds. Today in part one, we take up four topics. We look at the Security and Exchange Commission's plans for ESG. We look at the PCALB, which has been a dysfunctional agency for quite some time and whether there'll be a new direction. We consider FCPA recidivist enforcement after the Lisa Monaco speech. What does that mean for recidivists? And we conclude with FinCEN anti-money laundering, and anti-corruption enforcement going forward. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for our inaugural episode of 2022. Yes, that's 2020 with a two in it. So you get to say uh, 2022 again. So uh, what we're going to do in this episode and the next, though, is Matt uh, is a prognosticator extraordinaire in the compliance realm, and he's done his um, annual compliance events to watch in 2022. He writes on this uh, annually, and we're going to take the next two episodes to take a look at some of the issues that we think are going to be important uh, in 2022. So, Matt, first of all, that incredibly botched and long-winded introduction. Uh, welcome and welcome to 2022. Uh, hello, Tom. It's good to be here, and Happy New Year to all of our listeners who are joining us this week. So, Matt, uh, in your uh, annual post this year is entitled Seven Compliance Events to Watch in 2022, although you do note at the end that there may be others. Uh, so at least we're going to start with uh, sort of the first half of this list and go through that. So uh, number one is the SEC's plans for ESG. Where do you think uh, the SEC may take ESG in 2021, Matt? Uh, that's a good question, because we were all expecting this to happen by the end of 2021 throughout most of 2021. And specifically, uh, Chairman Gary Gensler, he had said earlier last year that he was expecting the SEC staff to come up with a proposal for review and discussion by the end of 2021. Well, that didn't happen. Here we are in 2022. Uh, and so uh, the latest thinking is that the SEC will move forward with a proposal for enhanced ESG disclosures sometime very soon. I personally think it's going to be in the first quarter of this year. Uh, although I just checked the SEC website and here five hours into the uh, working day for 2022, we don't have anything listed yet, but whatever. Uh, look, it, clearly the SEC is going to do this. They're going to do it sometime soon. The big question for compliance officers is what is the it? Uh, I suspect that they, the SEC will adopt a requirement that filers are going to need to use a widely recognized ESG framework 
to assess their material ESG risks and to therefore then disclose certain types of information. I don't think the SEC is going to name a specific framework. They're going to say something like use some good widely recognized framework. The agency may go as far as to say something like, and I think the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASB, I think the SASB framework is a perfectly good framework to use. There are others out there. Um, but a lot of what might happen with ESG right now is kind of, sort of, like what the Securities and Exchange Commission did with Sarbanes-Oxley compliance 20 years ago, where the SEC said you must use a recognized internal control framework to be in compliance with SOX. They didn't specifically say, thou shall use COSO. But they did say a widely recognized framework like the COSO framework for internal control. Sounds good. And 20 years later, everyone and their uncle pretty much uses the COSO framework for SOX compliance. We may see something like that with the SEC, where they won't specifically say thou shall use SASB, but they might say you should use a widely recognized framework, kind of like SASB, looks good to us. And then we'll all flock to SASB. As I said, there are some other frameworks out there. Right now, you could even mix and match among different frameworks if that's what you want. Tom, the one question, the two questions I, I don't yet have much insight on is how many filers will be subject to this rule? In theory, the SEC could exclude non-accelerated filers, which is a large swath of very small companies. Um, I don't know. We don't know that. How, who will be in the scope of this rule. And we don't know whether this stuff, these disclosures, will they be subject to an annual audit, which I think would be a big deal and pretty controversial. Needless to say, the audit firms think that would be awesome because it's more money for them. Companies are much cooler to the idea because it would be more cost for them. Um, and we don't actually know when would be the effective date of this. Would you have a two-year lead time or a three-year lead time or whatever? So that's a couple of points about the ESG framework that we all know is going to come. And we kind of sort of know what it will look like. But that's about all right now. Matt, in listening to your remarks, several sort of issues or questions uh, rose in my head. Uh, the first one is with uh, the EU and their proposals you think that there's going to be yeah. any conflict between the EU directive around ESG and SASB, or will the EU also look to SASB as really a, a truly international st standard that regulatory bodies can build from and use as guidance going forward? It is going to be more like the latter of what you're describing, where EU regulators and U.S. regulators are very much, I think, going to try to get on the same page. Uh, I know that SASB is in very close contact with other sustainability standard setting groups that are out there uh, to make sure that they're all pretty much harmonized. Um, the IFRS Foundation, which is the group based in Brussels that sets international financial reporting standards for corporate accounting in Europe and much of the world, they also now, they just recently adopted a international sustainability standards board. That's also basically over in Belgium. They're doing the same thing as IFRS for global accounting. The ISSB is trying to do now for sustainability standards for the rest of the world. What we might see is something like the SEC adopts a U.S. requirement 
for ESG disclosures. You could be allowed, even as a U.S. filer, maybe, this is me speculating, but you could be allowed to file according to international sustainability standards and where necessary, you might have to reconcile those international standards to U.S. standards. Um, maybe they'll just keep it simple and say, you know, use ISSB standards no matter what. But a lot of it is kind of like if you're a large global company, you have U.S. generally accepted accounting principles. You have the EU's international financial reporting standards. You might publish in one or the other, and then you reconcile to the other standard. At worst, for large companies, it would be a lot like that for sustainability, which is not the end of the world. Um, if you are okay with disclosing ESG data, it's not a very big jump to say, okay, and now we're just going to somehow reconcile it to the other standard that we should be using between EU and Europe. So I don't really see that as that's not going to be the insurmountable obstacle. The obstacle is going to be whether we actually do this or not. Um, certainly when the SEC adopts this rule, I don't care what form it is, are conservatives going to haul it into court? Oh yeah, immediately. And how will that battle fare in the courts? We don't know. But ultimately, I still think, look, everything is moving in this direction to more disclosure of ESG. It's not a question of are we going in that direction or not. It's more exactly how are we going in that direction and how fast. But we're going in that direction. So and that really leads to the point I wanted to end with, Matt, that you touched on at the end of your remarks on the uh, ensuing or uh, gauntlet of the court challenge. You said in your blog post that the SEC commissioners have laid careful groundwork to defend their authority on this subject. Uh, and you also uh, said investor demand for ESG information is real. And you, you spoke about that, but why do you believe that the SEC commissioners have laid careful groundwork to defend their authority? Or is that simply uh, your belief that the courts will uh, defer to regulatory bodies when uh, creating regulations? Well, I'll start with the first question. Why do I think the SEC has laid this groundwork? Because they have. Uh, if you look at several speeches that multiple SEC commissioners have made, uh, on the Democratic side, but Commissioner Allison Heron Lee, who is probably the sort of lead commissioner talking about ESG issues, but also her colleague, Democratic Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, they have both given long speeches over the past year, well, over 2021, laying out from their perspective why, of course, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission has the not only the legal authority to regulate disclosures around this issue, but why this issue is so important to investors and it should receive regulatory attention. They have laid out pretty much in painstaking detail, and I'm pretty sure the subtext to their speeches was all of you people who are going to be ready to defend ESG in court, please use this in your friend of the court briefs because this is what we're going to say. Um, so I see that. And then as to the larger question of how are courts going to review this, like I don't want to get into all the nuances of federal interpretation of the Administration Administrative Procedures Act or uh, the Chevron deference that courts are supposed to give to federal agencies, which I know the Supreme Court, as composed today, would love to gut that and then kind of let judges do whatever they want with regulatory power. Um, you could spend all day talking about that. The short answer is, I don't know how federal courts are going to interpret this. I suspect 
that a lot of the anti-ESG interests are going to be committed to fighting this, and will they take it to the Supreme Court? Yeah, probably. Um, will the court actually entertain that? I don't know. But you know, it begs the question of what is material to investors. The Supreme Court has already defined that. Tom, help me out if I'm getting it wrong, but information that would change the total mix of an investor's perception of the company or something to that effect. Republicans would all say non-financial information cannot be material by definition. I don't agree with that. I think that makes no sense. Um, you know, if the CEO has a heart attack, that's not financial. But what, you're really going to say that's not material? Of course it is. Proving the point that there must be at least some non-financial information that is material to the average investor. And then, you know, I, I don't know where that's all going to go. But on the other hand, there's a lot of other stakeholders who are still going to be pressing for ESG disclosures and data in the investment side. Um, there are going to be other regulators around the world who are pushing for this. So if you're a large corporation, I don't really know that you're going to be fighting this all that much anyways. I think, like I said before, I think you know that this is the direction things are going. It's just a matter of exactly how fast, not if we're going in that direction or not. Matt, the next topic on your list is the PCAOB and its revived agenda. And I went back and tried to look through uh, our podcast here on Compliance in the Weeds and we haven't had a substantive discussion about the PCAOB since the first year of the Trump administration. And unfortunately, that was around a uh, fraud uh, or corruption scandal, I should say, which uh, ge uh, greeted then SEC Chairman uh, Jay Clayton in a way he certainly was not expecting and did not want. Do you see the PCAOB as being revived under the Biden administration? If so, where might it go? Well, I mean, it's definitely going to be revived because in 2021, the SEC, and specifically Chairman Gary Gensler, who has the authority to fire PCAOB board members on behalf of the president, like he fired them all. Uh, he, there were, it is a five-member board. There were four members on in office at the time, and he fired three of the four. He kept one on as the sole board member and acting chairman, um, Dwayne Desparte, who's still going to be on the board. But the PCAOB has been a deeply dysfunctional agency for a long time. This is not the first time everybody on the board has been fired. Uh, in the last 10 years, there have been at least three instances of complete turnover of the board. Uh, due to various crises, and you know, specifically within the last couple of years, uh, former Chairman Bill Dunkey, he was a controversial figure to say the least. There was a lot of acrimony among board directors. There was a lot of misconduct among board directors, including one who was having an affair with a subordinate who then tried to blackmail the director into, I think, a favorable cash payout. Not to be confused with the harassment complaints. I think it was a racial harassment complaint against the chairman from a uh, Asian American woman who was on the staff. Um, the PCAOB has just been dysfunctional. I'm glad everybody got cashiered and we're going to have new people. We need that. Next question: What are they going to do? Not entirely sure yet. They haven't even all taken office yet. That should happen sometime soon. But the PCAOB matters because it regulates external auditors. And therefore, the pressure they apply to the audit firms will trickle down to the client companies, all you compliance, risk management, and audit people listening. Like That applies to you, therefore. 
when the PCAOB really tries to turn up the screws, say, on auditing internal control over financial reporting, you, the company, you're going to feel that when you say, why are the audit firms suddenly driving us crazy with all of these documentation demands? Well, that's why, because the PCAOB is leaning on them. Uh, or if the PCAOB adopts new standards for audits, say around how an audit should incorporate data analytics, uh, that could lead to new procedures or new demands that the audit firm will place on you. Uh, we have seen a very, I'll say, lax and inactive PCAOB, both on the standard setting and on the enforcement for a long time. Um, so I don't know exactly when that will change, but clearly it's going to change. We probably won't see much change until later in 2022, if not 2023. But uh, it's one of those one-step-removed agencies that still has a lot of effect on compliance officers, internal um, audit executives, internal control programs. So that's why this is worth watching is because, you know, finally we might actually have a, an effective and in-place PCAOB and they might actually try to do something. So, Matt, next on our list is a uh, our, our uh, issue on the first recidivist FCPA enforcement action. And I believe this comes from uh, your analysis of the Lisa De- Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's speech uh, back in October. But uh, what do you see around potentially a recidivist FCPA enforcement action? Uh, yes, you are correct. And thank you for calling me out on the, the headline I had for that section, which could be a bit confusing. I specifically am looking at what the Justice Department will do now with a company that has already committed an FCPA act or some other serious corporate misconduct, or maybe the company is under a deferred prosecution already, and now they've found to have committed misconduct again. What's going to happen? Um, and for the record, I, Tom, you did point out to me earlier that there have been recidivist FCPA enforcement actions in the past. We're specifically looking at what Deputy AG Lisa Monaco said, where she's promised last October much more rigorous look at corporate misconduct uh, and also revisiting the wisdom of giving deferred prosecution agreements to companies that have already committed misconduct, or maybe if they're under a DPA and now we find new misconduct already, what's going to happen to them? Um, now, Tom, I'm still very skeptical that revoking a DPA and proceeding with a criminal trial, that seems to me to be a very bold and provocative thing for the Justice Department to do. Uh, I think for various reasons we can discuss Going to criminal trial against a corporation, like that's a hill a company is going to die on. They're going to fight it. They're going to appeal it. They're going to spend any amount of money because a criminal conviction against a corporation is a death sentence in all sorts of ways to that business. And they're, they're never going to let that happen. They will fight that till the last dog dies, I think, usually. Um, so what are we going to do then? And Tom, you and I have discussed this before. Maybe there will be much more aggressive use of compliance monitors. Um, you know, maybe there would be some other sort of sanction that we could think of. I'm not quite sure what that would be, but they really made a big point of saying, we're not going to see corporate misconduct just be like the cost of doing business, you know, we'll settle and then we start all over again and we have more misconduct and then we settle it and then we just do it. If they want to see real substantive cultural and organizational change to 
beat back these recidivists, then what are you going to do? And I, I'm very specifically interested to see how the company might, uh, how the Justice Department might handle Deutsche Bank, because Deutsche Bank was under a deferred prosecution agreement for FCPA misconduct, and then later last year was told by the Justice Department that the department believes Deutsche Bank violated its DPA by mishandling an internal complaint about ESG promises it was making to investors in, I think, one of its asset management wings. So that's a very different type of misconduct than FCPA issues. But is that new type of misconduct really going to trigger a revocation of your deferred prosecution agreement? Um, And Tom, I don't even know this has ever come up. Like, Could Deutsche Bank argue against a revocation of the DPA in court? Um, you know, would a court allow this? Does a court really even care? Um, there's all sorts of things that we could pull on here about, you know, how did this work procedurally and what happens next? And I don't know. And I'd, I'd be very curious to see what's going to happen. We'll be right back with more compliance into the weeds after a message from our sponsor. Well, in terms of the procedural, it would be fascinating because uh, courts, uh, district courts have really had their hands slapped by courts of appeals, uh, basically saying that a district court has no ability uh, to evaluate a deferred prosecution agreement uh, to determine if it's an appropriate remedy. Uh, They simply, if it's submitted by the executive branch in the form of the Department of Justice, the courts have to sign off on it. And... um, uh, that's been made very clear by the uh, Second uh, Circuit uh, Court of Appeal and the First Circuit Court of Appeal. Uh, so that's really one interesting uh, procedural issue. I would assume that the defendant in the deferred prosecution agreement uh, c- uh, could go into court, uh, but they would have to be defending something uh, uh, that the underlying district court has not passed on. And so would that allow the district court to kind of go into the uh, the terms of the DPA, number one. But here was uh, the additional question I wanted to raise with you, Matt. Uh, We also had the Department of Justice, prior to the Lisa Monaco speech, uh, publicly notify Erickson that it was not in compliance with its deferred prosecution agreement. So do you see anything from the Monaco speech which might uh, give you some pause or uh, – not perhaps not pause, but what the Department of Justice might do if a co- if a company is uh, not in compliance with its deferred prosecution agreement, uh, separate and apart from being a recidivist uh, with a separate FCPA violation. Very specific to your question, did we see anything in Deputy AG Monaco's remarks about what they might do? The only thing that she really talked about at length was more use of compliance monitors. And okay, that's something you could do. She did not mention this in her speech, but I know that there are occasionally, there's there's already been talk about extending some deferred prosecution agreements for beyond the additional term. I think it's usually three years. Um, But I know that there are a couple of cases out there where that's very much a possibility that they might extend some of these FCPA, um, these deferred prosecution agreements. Um, The other thing that did strike me was that one point 
Monaco did not talk about when she gave her famous speech in October. She did not talk about more use of corporate penalties. Um, maybe because she thought that's in an inherent power. Like, why does she need to talk about it? The department can impose whatever penalty it wants. But uh, compared to the SEC, where they're enforcement people, they are talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to have a lot more enforcement and bigger penalties because they're there to punish. Um, that's a civil thing, and maybe that's different than clearly if you're in criminal trouble, yes, you are going to get punished. That's the whole point of, you know, if you're in criminal jeopardy. Um, so I do wonder if maybe could you have a deferred prosecution agreement with a large corporate penalty that is held in suspension? And then if you flub the DPA, the penalty kicks in. I guess maybe that could work. Uh, could you have some sort of clause that if you don't clean this up within three years or you have a violation, you automatically get a renewed three more years? I suppose that could work. Uh, there Maybe there are other corporate criminal lawyers out there who would have more nuanced views about what is or isn't possible. But, Tom, the other big thing, you know, why do compliance officers care about this? Um, the more expensive it becomes to negotiate with the Justice Department about FCPA issues or other misconduct, the less enticing it is to step forward and voluntarily self-disclose. And if corporate legal departments kind of win that battle and say, aha, see, we shouldn't self-disclose, let's just sit tight and hope nobody notices and clean it up. If they can win that battle and the board says we're not going to self-disclose, that really leaves compliance officers with a crappy taste in your mouth and you know, you're not in a good position. Um, I, I'm always going to say, yes, you should self-disclose. I think that's in the best interest of everybody, even if the immediate term, you know, it's going to suck for the company when you have to step up for that. But the more expensive it becomes and more painful it becomes to go through this process, the more enticing it's going to be for those cynical people who say, we shouldn't disclose at all. Just shut up and hope we can get away with, you know, we, we, we won't get caught. So I, I think that's a, a big consideration compliance officers have to think about. I would absolutely agree, and that's already the hardest decision I think a board uh, has to make in conjunction with its uh, outside advisors and uh, legal counsel, in-house legal as well as compliance. And uh, with these fact patterns and perhaps more aggressive approach by the DOJ, it's only going to get more difficult. Matt, next up on your list is, uh, and our final uh, issue for this uh, part one of our two-part series is FinCEN enforcement and anti-corruption. Obviously, uh, FinCEN has had a much bigger role starting on January 1, 2020, or 2021, with the passage of the anti-money laundering law of 2020. Uh, but you've coupled this FinCEN role with the Biden administration strategy on counter-corruption, uh, which came out in November. What do you see there uh, conjoining FinCEN and anti-corruption both compliance and enforcement. Well, this is interesting because uh, this is something that I've seen a couple of consulting and advisory firms start to talk about is if FinCEN is going to be more aggressive about cracking down on money laundering and illicit financing, which according to the Biden administration, they are. Uh, you know, The Biden administration published its anti-corruption strategy in, I think it was November, uh, it had five big pillars, and cracking down on illicit finance is one of those pillars. Well, if FinCEN is going to be looking at the financing uh, or illicit finance, like 
illicit financing of what? And a lot of times the illicit financing will involve corruption. Uh, you are illicitly financing a bribe that goes into some government official's pocket. So could we see FinCEN in paying more attention to money laundering wind up working more closely with the Justice Department on FCPA and other anti-corruption issues? Uh, and that raises the interesting question specifically for banks, but banks do spend a lot of money trying to build up their know your customer uh, compliance programs, your uh, transaction monitoring, and to various degrees of success. I think some companies or some banks are pretty good at it. A lot of banks still aren't. But if regulatory examiners say at the SEC, at the Federal Reserve, Maybe somebody shows up from FinCEN and Treasury. Uh, maybe you're a broker-dealer firm and somebody shows up from FINRA. If they are looking at your AML customer identification compliance procedures, could they also wind up looking at your anti-bribery policies and procedures, which are related to AML, but they're not necessarily the same thing? Um, and if you are monitoring transactions more for customer identity and suspicious payments, but not necessarily, you know, your transaction monitoring is not as good on gifts and entertainment spending. If you're a financial firm, could that wind up causing you trouble? Um, you know, I, I don't really know much more about it than that because this is still so new. But I think that's an intriguing possibility that FinCEN is going to tighten the screws on AML compliance. And as they do, that is going to spotlight more anti-corruption compliance program weaknesses that you, the financial firm, you might need to straighten out before you wind up with a FCPA issue that the Justice Department is calling you on. Um, so I'm curious to see how that's all going to shake out in either 2022 or beyond, because these things will take time, and maybe it's going to be a, a long-term thing that comes to fruition. Well, the other point that intrigued me about this issue you raised, that uh, we have uh, – on a prior Compliance in the Weeds podcast, taking a deep dive into the Biden administration strategy on countering corruption. And I saw it as, as really a significant and important step going forward. Uh, I don't want to characterize your position, but it perhaps was a little more let's wait and see. Um, do you think uh, we're in the let's wait and see, or do you think that the uh, Biden administration is really going to uh, unleash the floodgates in terms of resources and focus uh, at least around this crackdown on illicit, in illicit financing uh, that they talked about in Pillar 2 of the strategy? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say let's wait and see as much as I would say be aware that this is going to take some time. Um, and I do think, you know, could you double the enforcement budget for FinCEN and could they then go hog wild uh, shake, uh, investigating banks for their AML compliance program and kind of shaking things loose to see what falls to the ground? Yeah, that could happen, sure. But in order for it to tie over to the anti-corruption, we're going to need, I think, more cooperation with other jurisdictions that might be interested in trying to improve their own governance if they're a semi-corrupt country um, or that you know they're trying to build more good governance practices in corrupt regions generally I do think to your point Tom like you know you're right that I view the anti-corruption strategy as a bit anticlimactic I think 
it's not anything that wouldn't have happened anyways. Maybe there's a bit more urgency on some parts than others. But I think that for U.S. companies, it's kind of like, okay, this isn't a surprise. We've seen this. We knew this was going to come anyways. But maybe the anti-corruption strategy will be more influential and impactful overseas if they really are going to start to develop good transnational good governance alliances, law enforcement partnerships and whatnot with other parts of the world where corruption is rampant, if you're going to see anti-corruption stepping up there at the same time that you are looking at illegal or illicit finance floating around the world, those things are eventually going to intersect and you're going to wind up with AML issues that suddenly raise some very thorny anti-corruption problems for financial firms. Um, you know, PwC has a good paper about this not long ago where they actually did note you don't see a lot of FCPA action against banks. And we've seen some uh, against, I think, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and maybe some of the others. But um, we haven't seen them as much as we have in, say, energy and mining or in pharmaceuticals where FCPA action is much more common. But could we see more AML enforcement against banks trigger more FCPA enforcement after that or in conjunction? Maybe. But I do think it's going to take time to beef up the uh, the overseas capacity for anti-corruption enforcement. And I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but I suppose we'll have a better sense of it by the end of 2022. You know, Matt, I listened to that answer and, and reading your post, my question was, Will the Department of Justice or the Department of Treasury even now bring more anti-money laundering actions uh, against uh, U.S. public companies who've engaged in FCPA violations? Because is it now a natural extension uh, to conclude that if you have an FCPA violation, uh, you also have, or not a natural extension, but logical extension, uh, that you would have a money laundering uh, violation as well? And I've been trying to Sound the clarion call that uh, public companies, non-financial institutions specifically, and you call that energy companies, so I'll stick with them. Do they need to have more robust AML processes and procedures uh, to prevent getting uh, double dipped uh, by having an FCPA violation leading to an AML violation? Is that possibility strengthened for public non-financial institution companies going forward? I, I think that is a very valid concern for a lot of Consumer-facing companies, probably a lot of commodities firms, uh, trade-based illegal, uh, illicit financing or illicit money flows is a very common way to get money laundering done. Uh, where you might be buying into some commodities or something like that and committing fraud or money laundering that way. Um, I also would wonder if I were, say, a large retailer with a large amount of gift cards that are really pseudo cash, but you could buy a large number of those uh, gift cards in one country and then bring them into another country and spend them there. Uh, so that certainly is something to think about. I might even zero it in or help to, to focus the compliance officer's mind. Don't even get hung up necessarily on AML. Get hung up on customer identification. That's really what this is. is you have to know who are these people buying these things and why are they buying them? What is the business nature for this? Um, so that isn't that foreign of a concept to you. If you've done a lot of FCPA at work, you know, what are you worried about? Who is this business partner and why are we engaging with them? Who is this third party and what are they doing for us? 
similar sort of dynamic with customer identification. Who are these people and why are they in our enterprise? What are we doing with them? That's the sort of thing you need to think about. Um, but I do think you're right, Tom, that this could be something that more non-financial companies will need to think more about. Well, Matt, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I hope our listeners will join us next week for part two of our special year opening podcast on Matt taking a look down the road to prognosticate. Matt, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up part two of our two-part special series on looking at trends that we see and are going to follow in 2022. I've linked to Matt's blog post in our show notes, so check that out for more information. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.